0: Psalm 3, as we saw last week, is a morning psalm. But the opening verses are actually a prayer of the night before. That's how we can look at verses 1 through to 3, which is our text tonight, the night before. Lord, how are they increased that trouble me? Many are they that rise up against me. Many there be which say of my soul, there is no help for him in God, but thou, O Lord, art a shield for me, my glory, and the lifter up of mine head. As we saw last week, Psalm 3 is a psalm with a number of firsts. It is a psalm that is first called a psalm, a psalm of David. It is the psalm that first has a title and it is, in actual fact, the psalm that is the first prayer in this altar. Directly addressing the Lord in prayer, Lord, how are they increased, that trouble me. It also is the first psalm that has the use of this mysterious word, Selah, occurring three times at the end of verse 2, the end of verse 4, And again at the very end of the psalm in verse 8. What does that word tell us? Well, nobody really knows for sure. Most tend to think that it is a word that is telling us to pause, wait a little while and think and meditate and reflect. I think that's a good way to look at it. It's a word slowing us down, going through the psalm. Pause to reflect. Not only are we to pause in the reading and reflecting of it, I think these words also suggest that David paused in the writing. We must not always assume that David wrote a psalm at one sitting. I don't think that's always the way the psalms were formed. I think there are indications that they were put together at different sittings by the pen man. I met most of them by David, of course. I think there are indications. He wrote Psalms over time. Maybe taking up the pen in the evening. Sitting down, taking it up again in the morning. Now, of course, it's hard to prove all of this. None of us were there when David penned the Psalms. But there are some psalms that seem to show a certain time period involved. And Psalm 3, I think, is one of those psalms. There is a crisis in David's life. A very big trial for him. He tells us what it was in the title. It was in the time of the rebellion against him. By his own son, his son. Imagine that. You could underline that, his son. That must have been very trying for him. To have a rebellion against you is one thing, but to have your son in rebellion against you is quite another thing altogether. And so this is a psalm in the midst of a rebellion, and it seems to be taking place on the eve of a great battle. And we know there was a great battle, because Absalom had his army, David had his little forces, and there was a conflict. There was a battle. And this is having the appearance. Of the night before the battle. There is the morning of the battle itself. Part of this verses 1 to 3. Seem to be the night before the battle. And, and David is penning it down. His thoughts at the different stages. Throughout this. Now he may have written it all, all afterwards. But. He's reflecting on the different stages. It's not just all happening in a minute. This is over a period of time. And a twofold division is clearly discernible in the psalm. We could say that verses 1 to 4 is the night before. And then verses 5 to 8 appear to be the next day when he is saying, I laid me down and slept. I awaked for the Lord sustained me. And then the words for that morning, for that day follow. Onto the end. Verse 5, the first part of it, marked the division. Before the sleep, I laid me down and slept. Verses 1 to 4 is before the sleep, and then verses 5 to the end is after the sleep. So there's that twofold division, that, that's very clear. But there's also a threefold division in the psalm, and I especially want to point that out tonight. I say that this is a prayer, a prayer to the Lord. Lord, how are they increased that trouble me? So the opening verse clearly indicates that it is a prayer. But it's not all prayer. If you carefully read it, it's not all prayer. It, there is a, this address to God in, in verses one, 1 to 3. There is also an address to the reader. David's telling us something. He said, I laid me down and slept. I, I wept, for the Lord sustained me. Verse four, I cried unto the Lord from my from with my voice; He heard me. I'll not be afraid of ten thousands of people. So David is is telling us what he has done and how he feels, what he's been doing, praying to the Lord. So there's a wee bit of biography. There's a wee bit of addressing the reader, us. Verses four to six, we are addressed, and then in verse seven, he prays again. Arise, O Lord. And his prayer continues to the end of the psalm, verses 7 and 8. So you see the prayer's broken up. There's the evening prayer, verses 1 to 3. And then there's the address to us, the wee bit of biography, verses 4 to 6. And then he turns in prayer again to God, verses 7 to 8. So in actual fact, only five of the verses are prayer. And in between the two stages of praying, one the night before, the one the next day, in between the two stages of praying, there's this address to us. David telling us his state of mind. Tonight we're going to look at the first part, uh, the first prayer to God, and that's in verses 1 to 3. And we can say that this is a prayer in the night before. The prayer in the crisis. The prayer before the awful engagement with the forces of Absalom. The prayer before the war the next day. You see then this psalm is not something you can rush through. It's not David had a crisis experience and he wrote a psalm and it was all over. No, sometimes these crisis experiences lasted days. Sometimes weeks and months. And that's the way you're to think about these psalms. Some of them are over a period of of time. And that cella being thrown in there is a good indication, I think, of that. So we are to read the psalms slowly and carefully with meditation, and especially when we see this cella occurring. Now, as I said, this is a tough night for David. It's one of the lowest points in his life. One of the darkest nights. But he managed to sleep. He managed to get through the night And the Lord brought him through it. And we focus on his prayer then. Verses 1 through to 3. The evening prayer before he lays down his head to sleep. In a day of trouble, we ought to primarily call upon the Lord. That ought to be one of the main things in a day of trouble. You have to bring it before God. And that's what David is doing in this nighttime experience. Very dark, midnight for him. What does he do? The first stage in his trusting God. He's going to trust God in the crisis. But what's the first stage in trusting God? It's praying, isn't it? It's saying, Lord. It's telling God about it. And that's what David does. That's what generally he does in every trouble. And he was a man that had many troubles. He's a bit like our Savior in that respect. A man of troubles. A man acquainted with grief. And what did he do in all his troubles? Well, you you know, he wrote Psalms. He prayed in the day of trouble. And that's what he did. And many of the Psalms indicate this. In the day of my trouble, I sought the Lord, he said. In the day of my trouble, I will call upon thee, for thou wilt answer me. He's saying this all the time. Now, it's, it's a dark period in his life. And what's the first word that comes out of his Out of his life in this dark period. verse one, Lord, Lord, he prayed. Now, we know it wasn't all that David did in trouble. No, there's other things to do in trouble too. He did other things as well. We know that. He he took counsel, no doubt, from his, his officers, his counselors. Whenever you read the account in 2 Samuel... You will find him dealing with the situation to the best of his ability. And he's using men and, and positions to help him in that regard. He was practical too in trouble. He didn't just bury his head and pray and you know, did nothing and went on just hoping it would all pass. He made some efforts to resolve it, to get out of it, for help in it. But ultimately, this is what I'm saying, Ultimately his trust was in God. His trust was in the Lord. And in trouble we have to use means. Those means might be to seek advice. Seek counsel. It might be just something simple as to go to the doctor. It might be to take your medicine. It might be to ask others to pray for you and to remember you. To share the burden. There are these practical things to do. No doubt. But the chief overriding thing in a day of trouble is to say, Lord, Lord, and to bring your complaint to God. This is the main thing to to pray, to bring it to the Lord. Not because he is unaware of it, not because he doesn't care and somehow we have to stir them up to care for us in our trouble and trial, And that's not what calling upon God in a day of trouble is all about. It's about showing our trust in the Lord. And prayer is a chief aspect of showing trust in God. It's, It's your faith the Lord wants to see. It's your confidence in Him. It's your looking to Him. That's what delights the Lord. This faith of His people. Where they don't take it all into their hands. And go on in the flesh. And do it in their own strength. But no they know they need the Lord. And they pray. They say Lord help me. Lord deliver me. So it's about faith. In God. And that's what the Lord delights in. That's what the Lord wants to say. It's not that he doesn't care. It's not that he doesn't know. But his child. He delights in his child just coming. And trusting in him. But you may say, oh, my faith is so small. It's very tiny. And that may be so. And indeed it is so. Our faith is very tiny at times. But prayer to him is faith. And at the very least, that's what we can do. Even when we don't have much faith, we can pray, we can trust him in that regard. We know that he's ones that hear prayer. And so this psalm reminds us that We have to pray and that's the first stage in true trust in God and confidence in him. And as you pray to him, you'll find that that helps you. And it will enable you to lay down and sleep because you've left it with the Lord. This is what David is finding. Now this psalm, I said last week that it reminds us of Calvary. It reminds us of Christ. And there are many parallels with the life of our Lord Jesus Christ. He had his Gethsemane. He has had his dark night before. He had his crisis before the cross. And you remember that, that he prayed in Gethsemane. Uh, you know the story. He, he took with him Peter and James and John, the sons of Zebedee. He was very sorrowful, the Bible says. He was very heavy that night. He couldn't sleep. The other disciples we know, they were very tired and they, they did fall asleep. But, but he couldn't sleep. He, his soul was exceeding sorrowful on to death. And he brought those three with him, the the inner circle. And he said, tarry with me, watch with me, pray for me, he said. So he was doing something practical. He was bringing others in there. He was asking them to pray as well. But then he went on ahead himself. And he said, Father, he prayed. And he prayed the words that we know he prayed in Gethsemane. But he may have prayed the psalm. Many are they that are against me. They're increased, Lord. They're many. Many are rising up against me. They're on their way here to get me. There's many of them. Psalm 3 could possibly have been part of his devotion that night before the Lord. We're only given a little word of what the Saviour said about the cup. If it was possible, let it pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. But what I'm saying is, he had this trust in his Father in the darkest hour, and he prayed. We look at this prayer then tonight. It's divided into two parts, the prayer. You you will see that because at the end of verse 2, there is, guess what? A cella. So there's a pause. So David is saying, Lord, how are they increased that trouble me? Many are they that rise up against me. Many there be which say of my soul, there is no help for him in God. And then he pauses. He thinks and reflects on that. And then he says, But thou, O Lord, art a shield unto me. So those are the two parts of the psalm. And you can see there's a different mood either side. Uh, the first part, there, there's complaint. There's heaviness. There's sorrow. But in the second part, after the reflection, after the silah, there's confidence. There's reassurance. The two parts we want to look at as we, and if we have time tonight. first of all, David's complaint. Here he tells the Lord about the nature of the crisis in his life. and it is to do with his enemies, then that are against him. That's what enemies are. Enemies are against you. They' are the enemies of a soul. David's enemies under Absalom. And we know from the history that they had murderous intent. They wanted to blot out David. They wanted to kill him. They wanted to destroy him. And they wanted to do it quickly. That was their aim. So they had a murderous intent. What is an enemy? Brethren and sisters, we must never think everybody's our enemy. We must be very careful we don't get an enemy complex. That's very easy to do. An enemy is someone who is against us with malice, with wicked malice. And that's the important word, wicked malice. Some there are who maybe tell us the truth in kindness, and we don't like it. They're not our enemies. There are some who maybe are harsh to us, but... They are harsh to us in in their kindness, They, they, they wish well, they're they're doing what they do because of conscience, they don't want to hurt, but they have to say or act because of conscience, they're doing it in righteousness, they're doing it in even in kindness and in love, perhaps. So not everyone who is an enemy who hurts us, who says a difficult word to us. And we have to be very careful in this regard. Be careful who you call your enemies. They may be right, of course, these people who are thus kind to us. And we might need a harsh word. We might need some criticism. We might need a rebuke in our lives. And David wasn't beyond that. And he said, let the righteous smite me. It shall be a kindness. Let him reprove me. It'll only be the oil and it won't smash my head in. That's not an enemy who reproves and rebukes and is a bit harsh because... They feel that they're being righteous. So let's be careful. They might be wrong to rebuke us. And they might even be the devil's tool when they say harsh things. But they don't have that malice. That hatred. I think of Peter. You remember Peter, the Lord says, I'm going to go to the cross. Peter says, no Lord, that that won't be. And the devil was using Peter. And the devil was full of malice. But you know Peter wasn't full of malice. He was naive. He was foolish and stupid. He let himself be used. He was the devil's tool. But he wasn't really the Lord's enemy. He was the Lord's friend. But the Lord did see Satan in him and using him. But Peter was never the enemy of the Lord. Brethren and sisters. So let's be careful. That we don't call people enemies. Who are just. Naive and being used by the devil. And they're not really filled with hatred. And they don't really want our destruction. An enemy is someone who hates you as a, as a believer. And seeks your ruin and destruction. And actually works to that end. An enemy is not someone who doesn't pay you the he owes you. Or who doesn't make you his close friend. Or who maybe says a few harsh things to you or about you. Or who gives you a lesser smile than maybe he gives somebody else. That's not an enemy. We have to get things in proportion. And we mustn't imagine enemies. And we mustn't get a persecution complex. True enemies are those who would ruin you because you are a Christian. They're out for the destruction of your life and your testimony. Your ruin, your hurt. And chief among these enemies is Satan and his angels. They are our real enemies, brethren and sisters. And, of course, those filled by Satan, filled with his malice and rage, as many of his blind followers are. Men are David's enemies, too. That's who he's praying about here. He's not ignorant of the devil and his devices, But he knows that these men have been filled with satanic rage. They are his enemies. And his own son is among them. And we know David loved Absalom. Even when he was an enemy. Even though he recognized this hatred and this malice. He loved Absalom. You remember when Absalom died how pathetic it was. Oh Absalom, Absalom, Absalom my son. He was brokenhearted. So this son of his was among these enemies. That he prays against. And we have to keep that in mind you see. Because we are to love our enemies. When they are men. Now we are not to love the devil. And devils of course. But men blinded and used by the devil. We must recognize the difference. And our Lord Jesus Christ has made it very clear. Love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you. Pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. Who allow themselves to be the devil's tool and are filled with satanic rage. We are to pray for them. Now that does not mean that we cannot pray against them. As this psalm and many other psalms teach us. But it does mean that we should never be malicious and vengeful and Filled with rage as they are. We must always show ourselves the people of God. When we are persecuted and afflicted by the wicked. We must always show ourselves gracious and meek and forgiving. We must especially desire their change, their conversion from Satan to God. And we must especially remember. And this is very important. That we ourselves were once enemies too. Because the Bible says when we were enemies. We were reconciled to God by the death of his son. So let's not forget brethren and sisters that we were where they are today. We were enemies too. To God and to righteousness. And even to God's people. Now, David tells us three things about his enemies. First of all, and this is major with him, they're many. They're many. Three times he emphasizes that. He says, Lord, how are they increased? They're multiplying. They're a vast body. Many are they that rise up against me. And verse 2, many there be which say of my soul. So they are a great army. And as you read the accounts in 2 Samuel 15 and 16. You will see that that's the case. The conspiracy the Bible says was strong. For the people increased continually. With absolute. They were multiplying. And David was aware of this. They're increased, Lord. They're growing. They're many. And then chapter 16, verse 15 says, And all the people, the men of Israel, came to Jerusalem. All Israel's coming to Jerusalem, multitudes. And they are many. This was part of the heartbreak for David, who had done so much for Israel, and they've gone with the rebel masses of the people. It's quite remarkable how David has to say that in his life that, that many are against him. Psalm twenty five, consider mine enemies, for they are many, and they hate me with cruel hatred. Psalm fifty six, verse two, mine enemies would daily swallow me up, for there be many that fight against me. Psalm one hundred and nineteen Many are my persecutors and my enemies. As God's people were often outnumbered, we're often in the minority. It's true. You see, numbers, great numbers, don't prove the justice or the righteousness of a cause. They're found in numbers. And we should never worry or be concerned whether we have many or whether we have few. The rightness of what we do has nothing to do with that. The world lauds democracy and the majority rule, but that's quite a recent thing in the world. And I'm not so sure, it'll take a few more centuries to find how where this democracy is going to go in our world, but I am not so sure it's something the Christians should be hoping in. I think democracy may be the woe of the Church of Jesus Christ in generations to come. We're going to find ourselves in the minority. We're going to find that there are many, that the great democracies rise up against us. That's what we're going to find. A democratic society will not always benefit the church. It will not always bring glory to God democracy. I think that needs to be said in this great age where democracy is worshipped. And everything vile is done in its name. The numbers are against us very often. And in this case, the numbers are against the king, against the anointed, against David. And, brethren and sisters, many are against Christ. Many are against the king. Many are against the Lord Jesus. His enemies are not a few. We already learned that in Psalm 2. Why do the heathen rage? The people imagine a vain thing. The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together. Against the Lord and against his anointed. And here's a a, a sample of it in Psalm 3. Against the anointed, the many are rising up. They would take his crown. That's what they want, you know. That's what Absalom wants his crown. Remember how the Lord says in the parable the enemies come and they say, This is the sun, this is the earth. We'll destroy him and we'll take the vineyard. We'll take the crown. We'll take the property. We will not have this man to reign over us. That's not what they said about the Christ. We won't have him to reign over us. We reject him. Crucify him. Crucify him. And so at the cross, there were the many against Christ. At Calvary, the Lord had only a handful. Most of them were just a few women standing near to the cross. That's all the Lord had. Many. Many. So David is telling us about their number. And he's also telling us about their actions. He uses the verbs here to to describe what they do, how how it is that they show themselves enemies. Uh, They trouble him for a start. How are they increased that trouble me? That is, they bring him into distress and anguish of soul. They hurt him. It was a great hurt to David to know that his son was in all of this. It was piercing, it was troubling. You know what trouble is, this trouble. You know whenever you're sick and in pain, you have trouble. You know whenever you suffer a loss of a loved one, oh, what trouble that brings into your life. It's so painful. And enemies seek to hurt us. The devil seeks to devour us. Not only saints individually, trouble me. But also the church collectively. They trouble us. They trouble the church. And the church is going to have troublers. Because Jesus says in the world. You'll have tribulation. You'll have troubles. And these are the troubles of enemies. That the Lord is talking about. So the devil causes hurt and pain. And so also will the world. Through the devil's deception. They trouble me, And then he says. They rise up against me many are they that are rising up against me david's a king and what a king dreads more than anything else is an uprising an uprising in the land a rebellion a turning against the majesty on high and this is what this is is an uprising he's the king he's on the highest throne in the land he's god's anointed who has been given the rule over israel And he tries to do that in the fear of God. With all sincerity he makes mistakes. Every God anointed king makes mistakes. But those who are conscientious. Endeavoring to obey the Bible. And making it very important in their rule. Like David. He's the Lord's anointed. And he is to be respected. And so there is this uprising. This. This nightmare of his own son being the chief instigator of it. But it's no nightmare. It's real. The uprising is real. And brethren and sisters, we have to remember that we live in the midst of an uprising. That's what this world is, an uprising. It's an uprising against Christ. It's an uprising. Psalm 2 is all about it. This comes before this Psalm 3. That's why this Psalm is placed here the way it is. I said this last week. There's an uprising. And the people of God are in the middle of that uprising. And bear the brunt of it. Many are there that rise up against me. So it's directed against the Lord. Against his anointed. But he's in heaven. But his body's on the earth. And so the uprising is against the church. Against believers. It's not against us personally. As men and women and individuals. And citizens in society. But it is against us as the light. As Christ's disciples. As those that hold his word. You see it's an uprising against the word isn't it? Let's shake off his bonds. Let's shake off his law. Let's have nothing to do with his will and his word. So we have to uprise against that. And the people of God, they have that. They have the word. They're the light of the world. And so they face this uprising. And there are many that rise up against us. The body of Christ, those who follow the word. So remember, don't take it too personally, the persecution of the world. It is only because you have God's word and believe God's word and adhere to God's word that they persecute you. So we suffer trouble and uprising for our adherence to the word of God. You believe the Bible. You say sin is wrong. You name sin. You identify sin. You say sin is sin. You call adultery sin. You call stealing and lying and abortion and injustice is sin and sodomy sin and same-sex marriage sin and all uncleanness. You call it sin because the Bible calls it that and there's a great uprising. We suffer a great uprising because of the adherence to the word, you see, to Christ. Then he thirdly describes it what they say Many there be which say of my soul, There is no help for him in God. So we're told of their arguments. We're told of their confidence. They have such confidence that the man of God has no help in God. That's their false confidence. That's why they do these things. That's why they can do these things because they don't believe God is with them. They believe he's in the minority. They believe he's suffering the things that he's suffering. And he's been allowed to suffer the things that he suffered because he doesn't have God with him. He he has no God in his life. God's not with him. And so the wicked say, they're so small. They're so insignificant. They're so weak. They're so few. God can't be with them. God can't be with David. There's only a handful have went with him across the Mount of Olives into the wilderness. God can't be with him. And so they're, they're confident because they have the numbers. And that's what the devil will say to you, brethren and sisters, in your trouble and in your trial and in all the assault of hell. This is what the devil will come along and say: You've no help in God. God's left you. You're on your own. You never had the Lord in the first place. You weren't a true saint at all. You weren't one who belonged to the Lord at all. You never had God and now it's that you don't have God. He's not with you. You don't have the true faith. That's how they treated the Lord, you know. He trusted in God. Let him deliver him if he'll have him. He never trusted in him at all. He never had him at all. This is what the implication and what they're saying. And that was part of the Lord's trials. A sword in his bones, he said, men enemies reproach me when they said daily unto me, where's your God? Where's your God? Where's your God there on the cross? And you're suffering this agony. Look at you in your shame and nakedness. Where's your God? Oh, that was a reproach to his bones. There's no help for him in God. You who said, I'll destroy this temple and I'll build it again in three days. If you're the son of God, save yourself. If you're truly God's, come down. Now, why does David write this detail down? Well, I'm sure they said many things. I'm sure he could write a whole book about what they said. But this one thing reproached his bones. There's no help for him and God. Sell He stops there. He thinks about that. No help for me and God. Is that true? That's the crunch of the matter. These enemies may be wicked, but they've got to the crunch of the matter. Is there help for me and God? And so the enemies are saying this and David is reflecting on it because it's the heart of the matter. Is that true? David pauses. David thinks. If God be for us, who can be against us? Is God for us? And Satan says, Nope. And Satan will come to us. And he will say that. And he will want us to think that. And he'll want us to reflect on that. And he'll want us to say. Oh it's true. There is no help for me in God. The Lord isn't with me. I don't have faith. I was never the Lord's. I can't look to the Lord now. He's gone. I have so many failures in my life. He's gone. How can I expect Help now in the Lord. Now David might have thought like that. I mean the, the situation with Bathsheba. Wasn't that long ago. Many of these problems are coming into his life. Because of that situation with Bathsheba. And the devil is coming along. You know help for God. Uh, David might have listened. He might have said. You know you're right Satan. I'm going to despair. But brethren and sisters. That's not what he said. He didn't listen to Satan. He didn't listen to the devil's lie. Don't listen to Satan. Don't listen to the devil's lie. Listen to the word of God. So the wicked want us to think this in order to despair. To cast us down and more easily defeat us. And so you will see that although David pauses. He does not succumb. He does not get cast down. He does not despair. But he emphatically says with the pronoun. Thou, O Lord, art a shield for me. You're my glory. You're the lifter up of my head. So he has confidence in God. Let's not despair, brethren and sisters, but let us have confidence in the Lord. Let us say, verse 3, when Satan comes and when the enemies of God come, let's have this confidence. And we begin to look at that the next time, God willing.